0: I invite you to open up with me in your copy of the Bible to Ruth chapter 3 this morning. That can be found starting on page 223, 223, if you are using uh, one of the Black Pew Bibles. Set the context for us briefly as we prepare to parachute in to Ruth chapter 3. You may remember that last time we were in Ruth and we studied Ruth chapter 2, we heard about this providential encounter that took place between Ruth And this guy named Boaz in the fields of Bethlehem. You may remember that Ruth the Moabite, she had returned to Bethlehem a little bit before that with her mother-in-law, Naomi, after the loss of their husbands. And she went out into the fields one day to procure food for both her and her mother-in-law. And while in the fields, she just happened to stumble across this guy named Boaz and his fields. Uh, She meets Boaz, turns out to be a godly man, and when she returns home to her mother-in-law Naomi with a whole lot of food, her mother-in-law informs her that, lo and behold, this is a relative of theirs, and he's also one who may be able to pick up the pieces, help them pick up the pieces as they prepare to restart life as as two widows back in Bethlehem. So with this brief context in mind, let's turn our hearts and attention now to Ruth chapter 3, Hear now the word of the Lord. As always, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "'My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor.'" wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking but when he lies down observe the place where he lies then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do and she replied all that you say i will do so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, rather rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that this man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Over, over the last few weeks, I have been um, loosely following some news in Major League Baseball. I don't know if you like to do the same, but if you are anything like me, or if you're just attuned to maybe general sports knowledge out there or news out there, uh, you may have heard (coughs) that uh, the most sought after free agent in baseball this year, recently signed the largest contract in baseball history, and perhaps the largest contract ever in the history of professional sports around the world. Uh, the baseball player's name, his name is Shohai Athani, he just inked a 10-year, 700 million dollar contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers. A a historic amount of money to spend on one player, and then shortly after that, the same team, the LA Dodgers, turned around and they signed another player for a measly 325 million dollars. Maybe less than 700 million dollars, but it's still an absurd amount of money. On just two players then, in the span of less than a week, the Dodgers spent over a billion dollars. Just two players. Now, whenever a team invests so heavily like that in the offseason, it's no secret what they're doing, they're trying to wield the most dominant team possible in order to win a championship. And if you just so happen to be a fan of that team, well, a dominant off-season, you can get swept up as well in all of the success that the team appears to be having in the off-season. You might listen to all of the hype as well of the pundits and convince yourself that a championship is just around the corner. And yet we also know that over the years, if you follow sports, that there have been plenty of teams that try that approach, that in the off-season spend big in a big way only to watch their season unravel when the game actually gets started. There've been plenty of teams that have treated the off-season as a quick fix to their rosters, often without taking the time and patience to develop the younger players in their system and invest in the long-term health of their organization. And then when the season hits, some of these teams implode. And in the wake, they're stuck with massive payrolls and massively unsuccessful teams. Over the years, there have been plenty of examples of teams that have applied that kind of mechanical thinking in the off-season, more money equals more success, and have seen that backfire massively. When a more patient, a less frantic approach would have served them and their organization much better. Well, sometimes I think that this kind of approach that these teams in professional sports often take to off-season spending slurges Is in a way similar to the kind of mechanical approach that we sometimes bring into our relationship with God. You see, I think that most of us probably know that discipleship cannot be short circuited. We know that our maturity as Christians requires a patient investment over the long haul. That, that in life, God doesn't move things forward according to our timeline, and even obedience doesn't always equal health, wealth, and prosperity. And yet, how often do we revert to that mode of thinking, especially when we need God to act, and we need Him to act now? Well, when we turn to our text, understand that this is something like the dilemma that Ruth and Naomi face. You see, it had probably been six to eight weeks since the events of chapter 2, and though chapter 2 ended, you may remember, with loads of potential, when chapter 2 ended, even Naomi, who couldn't even muster two words at the beginning of chapter 2, was, was optimistic. Well, it appears now when chapter 3 opens that progress in Naomi and Ruth's restoration has stalled. Boaz still hasn't made his move, It doesn't appear that anyone else in Bethlehem is thinking for Naomi and Ruth and working for their restoration and the question a question hovering over our text is whether God will work to bring about Ruth and Naomi's restoration and so within this tense environment of uncertainty Naomi reasons that she has to act and take matters into her own hands. she's done being patient she's done waiting on God to work things out in his own time and instead she decides to throw all of her cards on the table and go all in, kind of like those off-season spending splurges. But in the process, we find that she seems to underplay a little bit the kindness of God and overplay the potential that her own scheming has to get what she's after. And yet, even in her scheming, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, We find, too, that the Lord proves to be far more kind towards her and towards her daughter-in-law than she probably imagined. And through Boaz, they find someone who indeed commits himself, despite her scheming, to bring about Ruth's rest and to secure for both of them a future. So our big idea as we look at the text before us is this, rest in the one who receives and secures us. Rest in the one who receives and secures us. Uh, Three points as we study the passage before us to give you a roadmap of where we're going. Um, First, we're going to see rest and the plan of Naomi. Second, rest and the character of Boaz. And third, rest and the promise before Ruth. Rest and the plan of Naomi, rest and the character of Boaz, and rest in the promise before Ruth. So first, let's start out, rest and the plan of Naomi. Here we're looking primarily at those first five verses of our passage. So I mentioned a moment ago, again, to set the context, that it's probably been a few weeks, several weeks, since this initial encounter unfolded between Ruth and Boaz in the fields of Boaz. And since that encounter, we see that progress has stalled. So Naomi, right at the get-go, hatches this plan to get things moving along. And her intentions, when the passage opens, are actually quite commendable. She says in verse 1 to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now, if you've been tracking the progress of Naomi throughout Ruth, this is an important milestone in her sanctification and her development and her own personal restoration. Because remember, when she, and Naomi, when she and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, she couldn't think of anybody but herself. She acted like Ruth wasn't even there, and in her despair, she couldn't even help herself in the most basic of functions. Ruth, remember, she had to take the initiative at the beginning of chapter 2 to procure food for them both. But now Naomi is on the upward trend. She's starting to think about Ruth, and she desires that Ruth would find a home and a husband, everything that's kind of wrapped up in what rest involves. And then she hatches this plan to ensure, ensure that that would happen. But this is where good motives begin to blend with, I think, some questionable actions. Because in what follows, Naomi instructs Ruth to do something quite risky, and even a bit risque, in order to ensure as best as possible that Boaz would bring about their restoration. Now, if you're looking at your text, there's a lot of debate surrounding what exactly Naomi's instructions to Ruth are intended to accomplish. You know, in one reading, these instructions for Ruth to wash herself, to dress herself up, and then approach Boaz in his makeshift bedroom after he had a little bit of alcohol, could be read as an attempt to bring about a nefarious encounter that evening, as a way to use um, sexual manipulation to get their way. Remember, too, Ruth's background, a little bit about Ruth's background. Ruth is a Moabite. And earlier in the Bible, well, we read something about the origin of the Moabites. Back in Genesis 19, we read a troubling account of how the daughters of a guy named Lot got their father drunk one evening, and then um, proceeded to, to have relations with him and produce children with him. And one of the child produced from that uh, incestuous relationship was a guy named Moab, who was the father of the Moabites. And so upon reading Ruth's instructions uh, or Naomi's instructions to her Moabite daughter-in-law, our concerns as readers of the Bible might be somewhat piqued at this point, given how eerily similar this is to what Ruth's ancestors did so many years earlier. And yet, while Naomi's instructions could be read that way, that doesn't seem to be at least her goal or her intent. Rather, it seems that this is a calculated and deliberate attempt on Naomi's part to get Ruth to propose marriage to Boaz and thereby to get Boaz to act as their redeemer. For one thing, when Naomi instructs Ruth to put on her cloak, You see, she's instructing Ruth to take off her mourning garments, garments that she had probably donned since the death of her husband, and put on something that would indicate her readiness to be married again. (laughs) Similarly, Naomi's instructions to Ruth about uncovering Boaz's feet and lying down next to him, that may sound somewhat scandalous, but Naomi's instructions aren't so much about what's being uncovered as much as it is about the covering itself. You see, in uncovering uh, Boaz's feet, Ruth would be putting herself and Boaz in a position for Boaz to then cover up her, and that would be symbolic, as it often is in the Bible, for entering into a marriage covenant. And so Naomi's instructions here are probably best understood in that light. Her her desire is to secure for Ruth a husband, and therefore Ruth's well-being, her future, as well as the future of Naomi. Uh, Naomi's instructions here in short, they're not bad. Her intentions aren't bad, rather. But in her eagerness, she exposes her daughter-in-law to a whole lot of risk. And it's probably not the wisest of plans. You see, think about how all of the ways this plan could be misinterpreted by a man like Boaz. First, he might understand Ruth's actions as the actions of a prostitute. It's noteworthy that the threshing floor, that's the place where grain would be extracted from the shaft after harvest, it was a place in this day and age that prostitutes would often visit during harvest time, knowing that men would labor long hours and then often spend the night at the threshing floor. And so Boaz might have understood Ruth's Ruth's intentions, this to be Ruth's intentions, and might have chosen to act accordingly. Or second, Boaz might have responded negatively to Ruth's advances, even if he understood her to be approaching him with a marriage proposal, and then shamed her for daring to approach him as a landlo- landowner and as a wealthy man, as a, as a, as a, as a foreigner. Um, he might have sh- decided to shame her in that. But instead, that, that's not what Boaz. That's not what Boaz does at all. Um, instead, what what Boaz does is heap honor upon honor upon her, and and we're going to see that as we continue to study our passage. Now, Naomi's intentions, again, they, they aren't at fault, but what we know so well, even in our own lives, is that even the best intentions can be wrapped up in folly, and that seems to be the case here. Sinclair Ferguson notes that, quote, there's a kind of feverishness about Naomi's desire for God's will to be done, but in the process, Ferguson continues, She is not sufficiently distinguishing the purposes of the divine will from the desires of the human heart. Restlessness of this kind must always be watched carefully. Again, in Naomi's eyes, if she doesn't look out for her and for her daughter-in-law and take matters into their own hand, no one's going to look out for them, and perhaps not even God. You know, I'm reminded of those advertisements. You may have seen these kind of advertisements before uh, that claim to offer the deal of a lifetime on any number of products. And yet to access that deal, you have to act in the next five minutes. You've probably heard advertisements like that before. We had recently, a few months ago, someone come to our door um, and they offered uh, an internet upgrade for us. Um, The deal of a lifetime on this internet upgrade. But in order to access this incredible deal they were offering, I had to act now. I wasn't allowed to consult Lori. I wasn't allowed to think about it and then call back and access the same deal. If I wanted that deal, I had to act now or else the deal would be gone. Well, this is the kind of frantic decision that Naomi perceives as before her. She has to act now, and it doesn't matter if this is the wisest approach. She's determined to procure rest for Ruth and rest for herself. And if anyone is gonna bring it about, it has to be her and it has to happen now. But as we reflect, I think, on Naomi's actions, we have to understand that these are also actions that are something of a mirror into our own hearts too. Ask yourself the question, are there places where I feel frantic right now, ready to plunge ahead into making a change, where a wiser or more more circumspect approach might serve me better? Of course, it's not bad to make plans for our future and then execute those plans. That's an important pillar of being a responsible human being. But if you find in your heart a certain restlessness, a certain impatience, especially if you find yourself willing and ready to compromise convictions or to throw away relationships in the process, we should probably pump the brakes a little bit. You know, I'm reminded what the Apostle Paul says, some of the instruction that he gives in 1 Corinthians 7, where he urges believers to be content in their calling. He says in 1 Corinthians seven seventeen, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now, of course, in giving that advice, Paul doesn't mean that we can't ever change anything about our lives, but what Paul's getting at is this issue of contentment. Can you be content, brothers and sisters, in what God has provided for you? Can you trust in him to take the lead when you don't quite see how things are going to work out, or do you feel the frantic and restless need to change things right now, as if if anything good that you have in life cannot happen, cannot be procured unless you act now and in your own way? Well, this is the dilemma before Naomi, it seems. But in what follows, we find that even though she's restless to seek rest, that the Lord he's still gracious towards her and to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And that's because of the character of the one they approach. And so second, the second point here is rest in the character of Boaz. So when Ruth begins to execute Naomi's plan, everything seems to be working out the way that Naomi intended it to work out. Uh, Ruth goes to the threshing floor, just as Naomi had instructed her to do and even Boaz does exactly what Naomi said he would do. He eats, he drinks, and then he lays down at the threshing floor, and then when Ruth arrives at the threshing floor, she continues to do exactly what Naomi commanded. She uncovers his feet and lays down next to him, and yet even though all is going to plan thus far, it doesn't lessen the tension because we still have no idea yet how Boaz is going to respond, and it all hinges on his response, right? So, it appears that Ruth lays down next to Boaz in our text without him waking or recognizing that there's another human being next to him. Parents, we kind of know what that's like when our small kids appear to us in the middle of the night. Um, it's startling, sometimes a bit creepy, too. And then at midnight, when both fi- Boaz finally notices someone next to him, he is understandably startled, too. But Ruth doesn't back away or stumble over her words. Remember, we've seen her character on display earlier in Boaz's field when she took the initiative for Naomi without hesitation, with boldness. And now she continues that bold trend, though she also diverts a little bit from Naomi's instructions at this point. Because rather than waiting for Boaz uh, to tell her what to do, she cuts him off and she tells him what to do after identifying herself, she makes this request, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Again, recall that Ruth's request that Boaz spread his wings over her is essentially a marriage proposal. It's a request that he would marry her. She's asking him to spread the corner of his garment over her, which would be symbolic, like we talked about, for a marriage proposal. But it's also more than just a marriage between two consenting adults because Ruth also reminds Boaz of something that Naomi had reminded her a few weeks prior, namely that Boaz is one of their redeemers. He's one of their redeemers. Now, we have to back up and get some context for that, because to call someone a redeemer in this context is to invoke certain provisions that were laid out for God's people in the law of Moses, in the Mosaic law. Um, For one thing, in Leviticus 25, there is this provision in the law of Moses that if you as an Israelite, if you fell on hard times and you had to sell your property in order to make ends meet, or even if you had to sell yourself into slavery a close relative of yours was called to act as your redeemer and purchase you and your property back. So You could be restored again. Uh, additionally, in Deuteronomy 25, there was another provision in the law. It was known as leverite marriage, where if you were a man and your brother died, leaving behind a childless widow, you were called to act as a redeemer marry your dead brother's widow, and then father a child with her in his name. Maybe a little bit weird in our context, but all of these provisions, including that one, um, were, were intended to bring about wholeness and restoration to families in need. They were designed to help the destitute, to bring restoration and wholeness for those who could not help themselves. But with this biblical background in mind, It's interesting that Ruth would invoke this provision in this particular circumstance and call Boaz to act as her redeemer, because although many of the redeemer provisions come close to applying here, there's actually nothing in this situation that legally binds Boaz to act. If Boaz wanted to, he could claim, well, Ruth's a foreigner, she's not an Israelite, and therefore he's off the hook, and in a sense he'd be right. If Boaz wanted to, he could claim that he wasn't the brother of Malhon, that was Ruth's late husband, and therefore that levirate marriage provision we talked about a moment ago, well, that didn't really apply to him either, and he'd be right. In short, if Boaz wanted to insist upon the letter of the law, he could, and there's a good chance that he wouldn't be bound in any way to marry Ruth. But here we notice the character of Boaz come to the forefront. Because Boaz isn't interested here in using legal loopholes to wiggle out of responsibility. Instead, he follows the heart and the intent of the Mosaic Law and responds with over-the-top elation at Ruth's proposal. He praises her for her kindness in choosing him, which is high praise since legally and objectively speaking, he's out of her league. But as he reads the situation, she's out of his league. He compliments Ruth in a big way. He calls her a worthy woman, which kind of echoes an earlier statement we heard about Boaz, where he was called a worthy man. The two, it seems, are a closer spiritual match than any social background may suggest. And then Boaz commits himself to act when nothing in the letter of the law really compels him to do that. But at the same time, he then introduces a minor complication into the narrative, one that will have to be resolved in chapter four, because he tells Ruth that even though he's a redeemer, that there is for her and Naomi's family a nearer redeemer. In other words, there's someone else who has first rights, legally speaking, to marry Ruth and redeem the property of Naomi. But once again, Boaz is proving here to be a worthy man in that he's not gonna look for loopholes in the law and then, rather than telling Ruth that it's her responsibility to seek out that near redeemer, what do we find Boaz do? Well, Boaz commits himself to take the initiative for her, where there's nothing that would compel him to do that. And then, recognizing the dangers that lurk around town at night, Boaz instructs Ruth to stay at the threshing floor until the morning, lest she be harmed, trying to walk through the streets of Bethlehem in the middle of the night. You see, throughout this entire course of their interaction, the way that Boaz responds— the way that he reasons is the most unexpected way. You see, Naomi and Ruth, they put Boaz into a really awkward position, an awkward position in a number of senses. For one thing, what if other citizens in Bethlehem saw this cloaked woman wander into the threshing floor where Boaz was staying in the middle of the night? His reputation was on the line. His reputation as a worthy man could be undone by such a scandalous report should it get out. And although the marriage proposal isn't broadcast on a jumbotron, it's done in private, and there's probably some strategy to that in in Naomi's scheming, it could be taken by Boaz as an insult to have a woman of such low status come to him and propose marriage to him, a man of high standing. It's not like the two had gone ring shopping or talked about marriage with their pastor and mutually agreed upon the next steps that they should take. Boaz, in short, has been put into a really awkward, unexpected position, and yet his response— is saturated with kindness. He never brings up the awkwardness or the brazenness of Ruth's approach. He doesn't shame her even in passing. Instead, he heaps praise upon her. He thanks her for the advance, and then he commits himself to step in the gap so that neither he nor she would skirt the law. You see, even if this whole situation doesn't quite meet the letter of the law, Boaz gets at the spirit of the law because his commitment as a worthy man, is to glorify God and to help the helpless, not simply to check a few boxes. You know, Boaz's whole response in this text is really amplified, I think, in the ministry of Jesus. I'm reminded of a story that we read about in the Gospels. One of the places recorded for us is in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus is on his way to heal the daughter of a man named Jairus, And while he's walking through the crowd on his way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter, we find that a random woman, someone who's described as having a discharge of blood for 12 years, someone who would have been considered an outcast and unclean in Israel, while she reaches out and she touches Jesus' garment as he walks through the crowd. She knows that if anyone can help her in her helpless situation, it's Jesus, and so she takes a risk. She dares to approach a holy man like Jesus as an unclean social outcast without an invitation. Now, when she touches his garment, we read in Mark chapter five, that Jesus perceives that power goes out from him, and he stops on a dime, and he looks around at the crowd, and he asks, who touched me? Now, if you didn't know anything about Jesus at this point, you would think that maybe a stern rebuke or something worse might be coming. When the woman falls before Jesus and confesses that it was her, Jesus responds in the most tender of ways. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You know, in the Old Testament, way back before that, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied of Jesus, namely that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And we see that in Jesus's approach to the woman in Mark chapter 5 we also see that in Boaz's approach to Ruth here too. But the question for us then, is do we expect God to be kind like this towards us? You know, we've already highlighted in our text some of the ways in which Naomi rushes along with, 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 with what's arguably a, a really unwise plan in order to jumpstart her and Ruth's restoration. There, there's a lot we've mentioned that's left to be desired in her whole approach to Boaz, and a lot that could have gone wrong And yet Boaz doesn't hold any of that against Ruth. And friends, the same is true in our relationship with Jesus, too. You see, if we were to critically evaluate our prayer lives or the quality of our worship, I'm sure all of us would find a multitude of ways in which our relationship with Jesus, our approach to Jesus, is wanting. You know, maybe there are are occasions when we approach Jesus. And in our hearts, we try to manipulate him by our prayers and getting our way. And yet even when there's a lot to be desired in our approach to Jesus, his kindness towards us endures. There's a section in our confessional standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that gets it a similar idea. Um, There's a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith that talks about good works, and in one of the sections, our confession tells us that even though our good works in this life as Christians, they leave a lot to be desired in a multitude of ways, that, quote, God, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, though accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Friends, Jesus is so kind to us in giving us what we don't deserve, and in withholding from us the rebuke and the condemnation we do deserve. But as a corollary, as an implication of how Jesus has been so kind to us, how do we respond to other people in the church or elsewhere in our lives when they might approach us in not the best of ways? Do we tend to assume the worst of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we? Do we take offense at even the most minor of infractions, or do we willingly bear with the weaknesses that all of us bring to the table and respond with the same kind of kindness that we've been shown in Christ? It's a question we would all do well to ask ourselves in view of the kindness that we've been shown by God in Jesus Christ. So Ruth experiences here the kindness of Boaz. And then she also leaves this encounter, this evening encounter with Boaz, with a promise, a promise before her, a promise that Boaz will act one way or another. And when she returns home the next morning, she reports this exact thing to Naomi, her mother-in-law. So this leads to our third and final point, a little bit shorter here, rest in the promise before Ruth. So when Ruth returns home to Naomi, we find that she returns much like she did in the previous chapter. There's something of a trend here. She returns with grain or seed. Returns with a, what do you call it, a doggy bag of food, if you will. Now for reference, the amount of grain that Boaz provides Ruth, it, it's uncertain, but it could amount to anywhere from 18 pounds to, to 100 pounds. It's a lot of grain. But the grain here is more than just food for a family that would rely on this kind of generosity. Because in the context of Ruth, this is also symbolic of the promise that Boaz just made. That one way or another, Ruth's future As well as Naomi's, would be secure. Boaz will ensure that they're provided food, not just for once in a lifetime, but but for the rest of their lives. And also that Naomi, or sorry, that Ruth will be provided a future seed herself in another sense. Now, remember, the big question hanging over the whole book of Ruth is whether God would bring Naomi, and and by extension, the nation of Israel from emptiness to fullness. And throughout the book, we've seen how the Lord providentially works behind the scenes in order to do just that. And now, even when Naomi hatched this hasty and somewhat unwise plan, the Lord's gracious purposes for his people have not ceased. And even Naomi, Naomi herself is confident that Boaz will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. See, in the beginning of the chapter, Naomi desired that Ruth would find rest, and now by the end of the passage, she's so confident in Boaz's promise that she urges Ruth to wait, which is maybe some advice that she should have heeded herself in the beginning of the passage, but she calls Ruth to wait because she knows from Ruth's report that Boaz will not rest until Ruth and Naomi are given rest. We've already seen throughout the text of Ruth how each character in Ruth steps up to help those who cannot help themselves. We saw Ruth do that at the beginning of chapter two for Naomi and going out into the fields to procure food when Naomi was so depressed that she couldn't move and couldn't even utter more than two words. We saw that earlier with Boaz, when when, when Boaz elevated Ruth in the fields of Moab, in in the fields and bestowed upon her honor when she had zero social clout. And now we see Boaz's promise to act again for Ruth and Naomi when they can't help themselves. And because of Boaz's character, because his character has already been proved, and only because his character has proved, they can wait with confidence in his promise. And friends, the same is true of us too. You know, ultimately, we have no idea what the next 10 years is gonna, are gonna bring. We don't know what it's gonna bring in our personal lives. We don't know what it's going to bring in the lives of our family, in the lives of our church, in the lives of our nation, and none of us can even guarantee that we will be here in 10 years. But the posture that Naomi encourages Ruth to adopt, one of confident waiting, is a posture that we can adopt too in our own discipleship because we have been certain of the character of God because we have seen the character of God proved in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Understand that Jesus also didn't rest until he accomplished all that he accomplished. Jesus settled the great dilemma hanging over human history, not just in one individual life, the dilemma over human history, how an unholy people could be right with God. And because that work is finished and Christ's character is beyond question, we can wait well with the promise that Christ is coming again to make all things new and to usher in a great Sabbath rest that remains for the people of God. Now, how that happens... Whatever twists and turns the Lord carries us through, we don't know. But we do know that the Lord will carry us through them, that the Lord has secured us and will not lose any of those who have been given to Christ. And that in the end, friends, it really will all work out in the end. So in conclusion, understand that God cannot and will not be manipulated through anything we do. But the good news of the gospel is we don't even need to try to manipulate the Lord because he has our best interests in mind. He knows what's good for us. And so we don't need to be frantic or anxious in trying to get our own way in life and acting like orphans, trying to procure for us the things we need for life, Rather, we can rest because Christ has already secured a greater rest for us. He has already adopted us into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And even when we slip into thinking, which we all do, that we can somehow manipulate God or even when we approach him with our messy and imperfect prayers, he still meets us. He shows us so much kindness, so much more than we deserve, and he accepts us as his children only through Christ Jesus. As so, brothers and sisters, the exhortation I leave you with is rest. Rest, rest in the one who has redeemed us and secured us to himself. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the hope that's held out in this passage, namely that in one way or another, things will work out. And we know that to be true because we've seen the character of Jesus Christ on display in and and, and, and and giving up himself for our, us and for our salvation. Father, we thank you that this passage points us towards the character of someone greater the character of jesus christ our lord and i pray lord that you would help us in light of what we know to be true about you and of your son to rest help us to rest in you help us not to be so frantic and anxious as we go through life thinking that we need to secure for us a good future knowing that you have already done that for us help us to rest in your very great promises knowing that you have adopted us to yourself, you have called us your sons and daughters, and you've held out for us a future, a future uh, that, that's far better than just a future filled with food and, and children in a, in a certain land. You have filled us, you've given us a future, the hope of a future in eternal paradise and bliss with you where we will see Jesus Christ by, by sight, who we na- only now see by faith. We pray that you would strengthen us in these words, and we ask all this in Christ's name, amen.